The Occult World by A.P. Sinet, the fifth American from the fourth English edition with the author's corrections and a new preface. Narrated by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. Dedication To one whose comprehension of nature and humanity ranges so far beyond the science and philosophy of Europe that only the broadest-minded representatives of either will be able to realize the existence of such powers in man as those he constantly exercises. To the Mahatma Kuthumi, whose gracious friendship has given the present writer his title to claim the attention of the European world, this little volume, with permission sought and obtained, is affectionately dedicated. A. P. Sinnott Preface to the American Edition I venture to think that this volume has acquired an importance that did not attach to it at first. Now that subsequent experience has enabled me to follow up with a more elaborate philosophical treatise. In the later work, I have endeavored to set forth the general outlines of that knowledge concerning the higher mysteries of nature, which the following pages describe as possessed by the Indian Mahatmas, or Adept Brothers. To that later work, the reader whose attention may be arrested by the story told here must, of course, be referred. But meanwhile, the present introduction to the subject may be recommended to public notice now in a more confident tone than that which I was justified in taking up when it was first put forward. At that time, the experiences I felt impelled to relate embodied no absolute promise of the systematic teaching according to me afterwards. Certainly those experiences in themselves appeared to me to claim telling. They seemed by far too remarkable to be left buried unfruitfully in the consciousness of the few persons concerned with them. It was true they elucidated no greater principles of science. They merely suggested that for some of the abnormal phenomena which have arrested public attention during the last few years, a more scientific explanation than those usually assigned might be possible. They afforded, if not absolute proof, at least an overwhelming assumption that living men might actually develop faculties qualified to operate freely on that superior plane of nature, beyond the reach of the physical senses, which had been generally supposed accessible only to the spirits of the dead. But all was still shadowy and ill-defined. The story I had to tell revealed a magnificent possibility rather than a definite prospect. It would still perhaps have been an interesting story, even if the curtain had gone down upon the situation as I left it when these pages were first put together. But it would have been nothing then compared to what it has since become. Now the position in which the subject stands has altogether changed. The tentative communications addressed to me by Mahatma Correspondent in the first instance have paved the way for a long series of still more instructive and valuable letters. Assisted in other ways as well, my comprehension of occult philosophy advanced so far during the two years following the first appearance of this volume that I was enabled to publish a more important statement, defining the outlines of that teaching and exhibiting a connected and intelligible shape the great esoteric theory of human evolution on this earth and of the cosmogony on which it depends, with which the adepts deal, 
The opening which presented itself to me in 1880 proved, in fact, no passing adventure, but the beginning of a new intellectual life. Attracted to it as I was at the time, I was certainly far then from divining the magnitude of the results destined to flow from it. But now that the proportions of the revelation I have thus been happily instrumental in procuring for the service of my readers have become apparent, I revert to the introductory episode of the undertaking with a certain assurance that I shall be engaging no one who will spare me his attention in any waste of time. I am bold enough to say this because the Mahatmas, or great philosophical teachers of Asia, and to some relations with whom I was enabled to come under the circumstances described in the following narrative, have now surrendered to the outer world so much of the spiritual science they have hitherto jealously guarded that the whole framework of their stupendous doctrine has grown intelligible. Fragments of esoteric truth, of that science of superphysical nature which the adepts explore, have been thrown out into the world at large from time to time before now, but in puzzling and unattractive disguises. The esoteric doctrine is no new system of belief, but, on the contrary, can be discerned now as lurking in a good deal of old Kabbalistic and Oriental literature that very few ordinary readers could have made sense of without the help of the keys now put in their hands. But now at last, the subject has emerged into the clear daylight of modern thinking, and the central principle of the sublime esoteric doctrine stands plainly revealed as one which harmonizes in absolute perfection with the preparatory conceptions of nature that have been derived by physical science from the observation and reflection of the current century. Biology is the latest, and in some respects the greatest of the physical sciences, and as the corollary, the complement, the crown of the science of life, we are now furnished by the teaching that has come to us from the East, with the science of spiritual evolution. Without this, it may now be seen by those who appreciate the necessity of this doctrine, the manifest, inherent self-evidence of it when it is once fairly understood, Without it, the doctrine of physical evolution is a libel on nature, a caricature of her grandest purposes. The great idea to which I am now referring exhibits the human soul as a continuous entity, subject to an individual evolution of vast duration, and developing on the spiritual plane of existence as a result of its successive returns to earth life. Mounting always upward, it has passed through the lower manifestations of the animal kingdom, and can never again revert to them. But as regards to the future, it will not merely pass through a purposeless succession of human lives like those going on around us. It will advance and expand in its individual progress towards perfection, peri passu with that general improvement of physical types on earth which is still going forward. Though the short views of human nature afforded us by mere historical observation may not render this process of improvement as perceptible to uninitiated intelligence as it becomes to the psychic discernment of the adept. To comprehend the way the work goes on, we have to contemplate the operations of nature on other planes besides those cognizable to the physical senses. And it soon becomes apparent that the physical life of the earth is only one process of the long series over which the evolution of humanity extends. 
But, and this is one of the most admirably scientific and ethically beautiful of the ideas brought out by occult study, the physical life of the earth is shown to be no incoherent episode in the experiences of a human soul, no fertile incident in the course of a spiritual evolution, the major portion of which is accomplished in higher spheres of being. It is inseparably blended along its whole course with the spiritual growth of the soul. The earth is shown to be no cosmic railway carriage which we enter for the purpose of accomplishing a more or less laborious journey, and the discomforts of which we may carelessly forget when we are able to jump out of it on reaching our destination. It is the home of our race for a long time to come, if not for eternity, and it is our interest as well as our duty to embellish and improve and ennoble it. In my father's house, says the old symbolical text, are many mansions. And in this planetary house of humanity, there are many more states of existence than the physical state. Some of these states may be far more enjoyable, for that matter, than the physical state as this is at present. And the esoteric doctrine shows us that the duration of the higher spiritual states when each individual ego passes each time into these, is enormously more prolonged than its physical states. But both kinds of existence are equally necessary in the whole scheme of things. All these views and the vast mass of explanatory detail which has since been furnished to the inquirers of the Theosophical Society are still undeveloped for those of us who are pursuing the clue afforded by my experiences of 1880, when the present book was written. But I refer to them here because I want to very briefly indicate the direction which our later inquiries took when, our attention having been arrested by the strange and startling phenomena here described, it dawned upon us by degrees that the intellectual instruction the Mahatmas could give us, if they would, would be enormously more interesting than even the exhibition of the abnormal powers. The same considerations, I hope, will follow in due order in the case of readers whom this volume may have the good fortune to attract. It has been sometimes argued in my hearing that it would have been better if the authors of this great new movement of spiritual thought, new for us, though so old in one sense, which theosophy embodies had furnished us with the results of their philosophical thinking without impairing the pure dignity of that exalted scheme, by mingling it into the first instance with sensational details of thaumaturgic skill. I am not inclined myself to quarrel with the order in which events were actually unfolded. Miracles, it is quite true, are illogical guarantees for theological dogma. But the manifest possession of great faculties and powers in other planes of nature, than those on which ordinary conclusions concerning her processes are formed, does certainly afford a presumption that persons so endowed may gather observations on those higher planes which it is well worth our while to correlate with our own. Meanwhile, I do not put forward the narrative of occult phenomena, of which this volume largely consists, as a statement which in itself constitutes a foundation for the very stupendous edifice of doctrines which later opportunities enable me to construct. But I know that the experiences I record in this book were neither futile nor fruitless in their efforts on my own development, and in anticipation of events that may contribute in no small degree, in the near future, to give a great impetus to theosophic speculation in America. I venture to recommend this book with special urgency to the American public, 
in the hope that a reflection on their minds of the influence produced on my own by the incidents described may serve to attract a good many fresh explorers into the paths of study and meditation, in which I believe myself to have gained such inestimable advantage. I have not found much to alter in the original text of this book, though I am glad to take advantage of this opportunity to append some notes here and there and amplify some passages. But important additions to its contents have been made from time to time, and now especially I am anxious to call the attention of American readers to the latest of these, which will be found in an appendix. It is possible that in America some persons to whom the existence of theosophy as a new school of thought is not altogether strange, may have heard of it especially in connection with a correspondence which has attracted a good deal of attention in the spiritualistic press. The discussion, to which I refer, has borne reference to a manifest identity of language traced between a certain passage in one of my Mahatma teacher's letters and a similar passage in an address delivered a few years ago by an American lecturer. The explanation I am now enabled to give to the curious circumstances under which this state of things arose constitutes in itself, I venture to think, not merely a complete refutation of some unfriendly theories which were started to account for it, but also affords a very interesting contribution to our acquaintanceship with the ways and faculties of the Mahatmas. The Occult World Introduction 1. There is a school of philosophy still in existence of which modern culture has lost sight. Glimpses of it are discernible in the ancient philosophies with which all educated men are familiar. But these are hardly more intelligible than fragments of forgotten sculpture. Less so, for we comprehend the human form, and we can give imaginary limbs to a torso. But we can give no imaginary meaning to the truth coming down to us from Plato or Pythagoras, pointing, for those who hold the clue to their significance, to the secret knowledge of the ancient world. Side lights, nevertheless, may enable us to decipher such language, and a very rich intellectual reward offers itself to persons who are willing to attempt the investigation. For, strange as the statement will appear at first sight, modern metaphysics, and to a large extent modern physical science, have been groping for centuries blindly after knowledge which occult philosophy has enjoyed in full measure all the while. Owing to a train of fortunate circumstances, I have come to know that this is the case. I have come into some contact with persons who are heirs of a greater knowledge concerning the mysteries of nature and humanity than modern culture has yet evolved. And my present wish is to sketch the outlines of this knowledge to record with exactitude the experimental proofs I have obtained that occult science invests its adepts with a control of natural forces superior to that enjoyed by physicists of the ordinary type, and the grounds there are for bestowing the most respectful consideration on the theories entertained by occult science concerning the constitution and destinies of the human soul. Of course, people in the present day will be slow to believe that any knowledge worth considering can be found outside the bright focus of Western culture. Modern science has accomplished grand results by the open method of investigation, and is very important of the theory that persons who ever attained to real knowledge, either in sciences or metaphysics, 
could have been content to hide their light under a bushel. So the tendency has been to conceive that occult philosophers of old, Egyptian priests, Chaldean magi, the Essenes, Gnostics, theurgic Neoplatonists, and the rest, who kept their knowledge secret, must have adopted that policy to conceal the fact that they knew very little. Mystery can only have been loved by charlatans who wished to mystify. The conclusion is pardonable from the modern point of view, but it has given rise to an impression in the popular mind that the ancient mystics have actually been turned inside out and found to know very little. This impression is absolutely erroneous. Men of science in former ages worked in secret, and instead of publishing their discoveries, taught them in secret to carefully selected pupils. Their motives for adopting that policy are readily intelligible, even if the merits of the policy may seem still open to discussion. At all events, their teaching has not been forgotten. It has been transmitted by secret initiation to men of our own time. And while its methods and its practical achievements remain secret in their hands, it is open to any patient and earnest student of the question to satisfy himself that these methods are of supreme efficacy, and these achievements far more admirable than any yet standing to the credit of modern science. For the secrecy in which these operations have been shrouded has never disguised their existence, and it is only in our own time that this has been forgotten. Formerly, at great public ceremonies, the initiates displayed the powers with which their knowledge of natural laws invested them. We carelessly assume that the narratives of such displays describe performances of magic. We have decided that there is no such thing as magic. Therefore, the narratives must have been false. The persons whom they refer to impostors. But supposing that magic of old was simply the science of magi, of learned men, there is no magic in the modern sense left in the matter. And supposing that such science, even in ancient times already the product of long ages of study, had gone in some directions further than our much younger modern science has yet reached, it is reasonable to conclude that some displays in connection with ancient mysteries may have been strictly scientific experiments. Though they sound like displays of magic, and would look like displays of magic for us now if they could be repeated. On that hypothesis, modern sagacity, applying modern knowledge to the subject of ancient mysteries, may be merely modern folly evolving erroneous conclusions from modern ignorance. But there is no need to construct hypothesis in the matter. The facts are accessible if they are sought for in the right way, and the facts are these. The wisdom of the ancient world, science and religion commingled, physics and metaphysics combined, was a reality, and it still survives. It is that which will be spoken of in these pages as occult philosophy. It was already a complete system of knowledge that had been cultivated in secret and handed down to initiates for ages, before its professors performed experiments in public to impress the popular mind in Egypt and Greece. Adepts of occultism in the present day are capable of performing similar experiments and of exhibiting results that prove them immeasurably further advanced than ordinary modern science in a comprehension of the forces of matter. Furthermore, they inherit from their great predecessors a science which deals not merely with physics, but with the constitution and capacities of the human soul and spirit. 
Modern science has discovered the circulation of the blood. Occult science understands the circulation of the life principle. Modern physiology deals with the body only. Occultism with the soul as well. Not as the subject of vague religious rhapsodies, but it is an actual entity with properties that can be examined in combination with or apart from those of the body. It is chiefly in the East that occultism is still kept up, in India and in adjacent countries. It is in India that I have encountered it, and this little volume is written to describe the experiences I have enjoyed and to retail the knowledge I have acquired. 2. My narrative of events must be preceded by some further general explanations, or it would be unintelligible. The identity of occultism as practiced in all ages must be kept in view to account for the magnitude of its organization and for the astounding discovery that secluded Orientals may understand more about electricity than Faraday, more about physics than Tyndall. The culture of Europe has been developed by Europeans for themselves within the last few hundred years. The culture of occultists is the growth of vast periods long anterior to these, when civilization inhabited the East. And during a career which has carried occultism in the domain of physical science, far beyond the point we have reached, physical science has merely been an object for occultism of secondary importance. Its main strength has been devoted to metaphysical inquiry and to the latent psychological faculties in man, faculties which, in their development, enable the occultist to obtain actual experimental knowledge concerning the soul's condition of extracorporeal existence. There is thus something more than a mere archaeological interest in the identification of the occult system with the doctrines of the initiated organizations in all ages of the world's history and we are presented by this identification with the key to the philosophy of religious development. Occultism is not merely an isolated discovery showing humanity to be possessed of certain powers over nature, which the narrower study of nature from the merely materialistic standpoint has failed to develop. It is an illumination cast over all previous spiritual speculation worth anything, of a kind which knits together some apparently divergent systems. It is to spiritual philosophy much what Sanskrit was found to be comparative philology. It is a common stock of philosophical roots. Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, and the Egyptian theology are thus brought into one family of ideas. Occultism, as it is no new invention, is no specific sect. But the professors of no sect can afford to dispense with the sidelights it throws upon the conception of nature and man's destinies, which they may have been induced by their own specific faith to form. Occultism, in fact, must be recognized by anyone who will take the trouble to put before his mind clearly the problems with which it deals. As a study of the most sublime importance to every man who cares to live a life worthy of his human rank in creation and who can realize the bearing on ethics of certain knowledge concerning his own survival after death. It is one thing to follow the lead of a hazy impression that a life beyond the grave, if there is one, may be somehow benefited by abstinence from wrongdoing on this side. It will clearly be another to realize, if that can be shown to be the case, that the life beyond the grave must, 
with the certainty of a sum total built up of a series of plus and minus quantities, be the final expression of the use made of opportunities in this. I have said that the startling importance of occult knowledge turns on the matter in which it affords exact and experimental knowledge concerning spiritual things, which under all other systems must remain the subject of speculation or blind religious faith. It may be further asserted that occultism shows that the harmony and smooth continuity of nature, observable in physics, extend to those operations of nature that are concerned with the phenomena of metaphysical existence. Before approaching an exposition of the conclusions concerning the nature of man that occult philosophy has reached, it may be worthwhile to meet an objection that may perhaps be raised by the reader on the threshold of the subject. How is it that conclusions of such great weight have been kept the secret property of a jealous body of initiates? Is it not a law of progress that truth asserts itself and courts the free air and light? Is it reasonable to suppose that the greatest of all truths, the fundamental basis of truth concerning man and nature, should be afraid to show itself? With what object could the ancient professors of, or proficients in, occult philosophy keep the priceless treasures of their researches to themselves? Now, it is no business of mine to defend the extreme tenacity with which the proficients in occultism have hitherto not only shut out the world from the knowledge of their knowledge, but have almost left it in ignorance that such knowledge exists. It is enough here to point out that it would be foolish to shut our eyes to a revelation that may now be partially conceded, merely because we are piqued at the behavior of those who have been in a position to make it before but have not chosen to do so. Nor would it be wiser to say that the reticence of the occultists so far discredits anything we may now be told about their acquirements. When the sun is actually shining, it is in no use to say that its light is discredited by the behavior of the barometer yesterday. I have to deal, when discussing the acquirements of occultism, with facts that have actually taken place and nothing can discredit what is known to be true. No doubt it will be worthwhile later on to examine the motives which have rendered the occultists of all ages so profoundly reserved. And there may be more to say in justification of the course that has been pursued than is visible at the first glance. Indeed, the reader will not go far in an examination of the nature of the powers which proficients in occultism actually possess without seeing that it is supremely desirable to keep back the practical exercise of such powers from the world at large. But it is one thing to deny mankind generally the key which unlocks the mystery of occult power. It is another to withhold the fact that there is a mystery to unlock. However, the further discussion of that question here would be premature. Enough for the present to take note of the fact that secrecy, after all, is not complete if external students of the subject are enabled to learn as much about the mysteries as I shall have to tell. Manifestly, there's a great deal more behind, but at all events, a great deal is to be learned by inquirers who will set to work in the right way. And that which may now be learned is no new revelation at last, capriciously extended to the outer world for the first time. In former periods of history, 
A great deal more has been known about the nature of occultism by the world at large than is known at this moment to the modern West. The bigotry of modern civilization, and not the jealousy of the occultist, is to blame if the European races are at this moment more generally ignorant of the extent to which psychological research has been carried than the Egyptian populace in the past or the people of India in the present day. As regards the latter, amongst whom the truth of the theory just suggested can easily be put to the test, you will find the great majority of Hindus perfectly convinced of the truth of the main statements which I am about to put forward. They do not generally or readily talk about such subjects with Europeans, because they are so prone to stupid derision of views they do not understand, or believe in already. The Indian native is very timid in presence of such ridicule, but it does not affect in the slightest degree the beliefs which rest in his own mind on the fundamental teaching he will always have received, and in many cases on odds and ends of experiences he may himself have had. The Hindus are thus well aware, as a body, of the fact that there are persons who by entire devotion to certain modes of life acquire unusual powers in the nature of such as Europeans would very erroneously call supernatural. They are quite familiar with the notion that such persons live secluded lives and are inaccessible to ordinary curiosity, and that they are nonetheless approachable by fit and determined candidates for admission to occult training. Ask any cultivated Hindu if he has ever heard of Mahatmas and Yogvidya or occult science, and it is a hundred to one that you will find he has, and unless he happens to be one of the hybrid products of Anglo-Indian universities, that he fully believes in the reality of the powers ascribed to yoga. It does not follow that he will at once say yes to a European asking the question. He will probably say just the reverse from the apprehension I have spoken of above. But push your questions home and you will discover the truth, as I did, for example in the case of a very intelligent English-speaking native vakil in an influential position and in constant relations with high European officials last year. At first, my new acquaintance met my inquiries as to whether he knew anything about these subjects with a wooden look of complete ignorance and an explicit denial of any knowledge as to what I meant at all. It was not till the second time I saw him in private, at my own house, that by degrees it grew upon him that I was in earnest, and I knew something about yoga myself. And then he quietly opened out about his real thoughts on the subject, and showed me that he knew not only perfectly well what I meant all along, but was stocked with information concerning occurrences and phenomena of an occult or apparently supernatural order, many of which had been observed in his own family and some by himself. The point of all this is that Europeans are not justified in attributing to the jealousy of the occultists the absolute and entire ignorance of all that concerns them which pervades the modern society of the West. The West has been occupied with the business of material progress, to the exclusion of psychological development. Perhaps it has done best for the world in confining itself to its speciality, but however this may be, it is only itself to blame if its concentration of purpose has led to something like retrogression in another branch of development. Jacoliat, the French writer, who has dealt at great length with various phases of spiritism in the East, 
was told by one who must have been an adept to judge by the language used. You have studied physical nature, and you have obtained, through the laws of nature, marvelous results. Steam, electricity, etc., etc. For 20,000 years or more, we have studied the intellectual forces. We have discovered their laws, and we obtain, by making them act alone or in concert with matter, phenomena still more astonishing than your own. Jacoliat adds, We have seen things such as one does not describe for fear of making his readers doubt his intelligence. But still, we have seen them. 3. Occult phenomena must not be confused with the phenomena of spiritualism. The latter, whatever they may be, are manifestations which mediums can neither control nor understand in a scientific sense. The former are achievements of a conscious, living operator, comprehending the laws with which he works. If these achievements appear miraculous, that is the fault of the observer's ignorance. The spiritualist knows perfectly well, in spite of ignorant mockery on the part of outsiders content to laugh without knowing what they are laughing at, that all kinds of occurrences distinctly outside the range of physical causation do constantly take place for inquirers who hunt them with sufficient diligence. But he has never been able to do more than frame hypothesis in respect to the hidden laws of nature, by virtue of which they have been produced. He has taken up a certain hypothesis, uh, faux de mieux, in the first instance, and working always on this idea, has constructed such an elaborate edifice of theory round the facts that he is very reluctant to tolerate the interposition of a new hypothesis which will oblige him to revise his conclusions in some very important particulars. There will be no way of avoiding this necessity, however, if he belongs to the order of inquirers who care rather to be sure they have laid hold of the truth than to fortify a doctrine they have espoused for better or for worse. Broadly speaking, there is scarcely one of the phenomena of spiritualism that adepts in occultism cannot reproduce by the force of their own will, supplemented by a comprehension of the resources of nature. As will be seen when I come to a direct narrative of my own experiences, I have seen some of the most familiar phenomena of spiritualism produced by purely human agency. The old original spirit rap which introduced the mightier phenomena of spiritualism has been manifested for my edification in a countless variety of ways, and under conditions which render the hypothesis of any spiritual agency in the matter wholly preposterous. I have seen flowers fall from the blank ceiling of a room under circumstances that gave me a practical assurance that no spiritual agency was at work, though in a manner as absolutely supernatural in the sense of being produced without the aid of any material appliances, as any of the floral showers by which some spiritual mediums are attended. I have over and over again received direct writing produced on paper in sealed envelopes of my own, which was created or precipitated by a living human correspondent. I have information which, though second-hand, is very trustworthy, of a great variety of other familiar spiritual phenomena produced in the same way by human adepts in occultism. But it is not my present task to make war on spiritualism. 
the announcements I have to make will indeed be probably received more readily among spiritualists than in any other circles of the ordinary world. For the spiritualists are at all events aware, from their own experience, that the orthodox science of the day does not know the last word concerning mind and matter, while the orthodox outsider stupidly clings to a denial of facts when these are of a nature which he foresees himself unable to explain. As the facts of spiritualism, though accessible to any honest man who goes in search of them, are not of a kind which anyone can carry about and fling in the faces of pragmatic skeptics. These latter are enabled to keep up their professions of incredulity without the foolishness of their position being obvious to each other, plain as it is to the initiated. However, although in this way the ordinary scientific mind will be reluctant to admit either the trustworthiness of my testimony or the conceivability of my explanations, it may allay some hostile prejudices to make clear at the outset that occult science deals with no guesswork concerning the post-mortem intervention of human beings in the affairs of this world. Its methods are as precise and its methods are as precise and its mental discipline as rigid as those of the laboratory or the university lecture room. Wedding with theosophic research Spiritualism itself might guard itself from all those hasty inferences which have done so much to turn large sections of the cultivated people against it, and if they will but take the trouble to approach the subject from the point of view of occult science, students of physical nature will be enabled at last to handle the phenomena of spiritualism freely, to consider them apart from the theories to which they have prematurely given rise and thus relieved of the repugnance they feel for them at present, to bring them within the area that which they at last will willingly recognize as true scientific generalizations. Occultism and its Adepts 1. The powers with which occultism invests its adepts include, to begin with, a control over various forces in nature, which ordinary science knows nothing about, and by means of which an adept can hold a conversation with any other adept, whatever intervals on the Earth's surface may lie between them. This psychological telegraphy is wholly independent of all the mechanical conditions or appliances whatever, and the clairvoyant faculties of the adept are so perfect and complete that they amount to a species of omniscience as regards mundane affairs. The body is the prison of the soul for ordinary mortals. We can see merely what comes before its windows. We can take cognizance only of what is brought within its bars. But the adept has found the key of his prison and can emerge from it at pleasure. It is no longer a prison for him, merely a dwelling. In other words, the adept can project his soul out of his body to any place he pleases with the rapidity of thought. The whole edifice of occultism, from basement to roof, is so utterly strange to ordinary conceptions that it is difficult to know how to begin an explanation of its contents. How could one describe a calculating machine to an audience unfamiliar with simplest mechanical contrivances and knowing nothing of arithmetic? And the highly cultured classes of modern Europe, as regards the achievements of occultism, 
are, in spite of the perfection of their literary scholarship and the exquisite precision of their attainments in their own departments of science, and the position as regards occultism of knowing nothing about the ABC of the subject, nothing about the capacities of the soul at all as distinguished from the capacities of body and soul combined. The occultists for ages have devoted themselves to that study chiefly. They have accomplished results in connection with it, which are absolutely bewildering in their magnificence. But suddenly introduced to some of these, the prosaic intelligence is staggered and feels in a world of miracle and enchantment. On charts that show the stream of history, the nations all intermingle more or less, except the Chinese. And that is shown coming down in a single river without affluence and without branches from out of the clouds of time. Suppose that civilized Europe had not come into contact with the Chinese till lately. And suppose that the Chinamen, very much brighter in intelligence than they really are, had developed some branch of physical science to the point it actually has reached with us. Suppose that particular branch had been entirely neglected with us. The surprise we should feel at taking up the Chinese discoveries and the refined development without having gradually grown familiar with their small beginnings would be very great. Now this is exactly the situation as regards occult science. The occultists have been a race apart from an earlier period that we can fathom. Not a separate race physically, not a uniform race physically at all, nor a nation in any sense of the word, but a continuous association of men of the highest intelligence linked together by a bond stronger than any other tie of which mankind has experience, and carrying on with a perfect continuity of purpose the studies and traditions and mysteries of self-development handed down to them by their predecessors. All this time the stream of civilization, on the foremost waves of which the culture of modern Europe is floating, has been wholly and absolutely neglectful of the one study with which the occultists have been solely engaged. What wonder that the two lines of civilization have diverged so far apart that their forms are now entirely unlike each other. It remains to be seen whether this attempt to reintroduce the long-estranged cousins will be tolerated or treated as an impotent attempt to pass off an imposter as a relation. I've said that the occultist can project his soul from his body. As an incidental discovery, it will be observed, he has thus ascertained beyond all shadow of a doubt that he really has got a soul. The comparison of myths has sometimes been called the science of religion. If there can really be a science of religion, it must necessarily be occultism. On the surface, perhaps, it may not be obvious that religious truth must necessarily open out more completely to the soul as temporarily loosened from the body, than to the soul as taking cognizance of ideas through the medium of the physical senses. But to ascend into a realm of immateriality, where cognition becomes a process of pure perception, while the intellectual faculties are in full play and centered in the immaterial man, must manifestly be conducive to an enlarged comprehension of religious truth. I've just spoken of the immaterial man as distinguished from the body of the physical senses, but so complex is the statement I have to make that I must no sooner induce the reader to tolerate the phrase than I must reject it for the future as inaccurate. 
occult philosophy has ascertained that the inner ethereal self, which is the man as distinguished from his body, is itself the envelope of something more ethereal still, is itself, in a subtle sense of the term, material. The majority of civilized people believe that man has a soul which will somehow survive the dissolution of the body, but they have to confess that they do not know very much about it. A good many of the most highly civilized have grave doubts on the subject, and some think that researches in physics, which have suggested the notion that even thought may be a mode of motion, tend to establish the strong probability of the hypothesis that when the life of the body is destroyed, nothing else survives. Occult philosophy does not speculate about the matter at all. It knows the state of the facts. St. Paul, who was an occultist, speaks of man as constituted of body, soul, and spirit. The distinction is one that hardly fits in with the theory, that when a man dies, his soul is translated to heaven or hell forever. When that becomes of the spirit, and what is the spirit as different from the soul? On the ordinary hypothesis, orthodox thinkers work out each some theory on the subject for himself. Either that the soul is the seat of the emotions and the spirit of the intellectual faculties, or vice versa. No one can put such conjectures on solid foundation, not even on the basis of an alleged revelation. But St. Paul was not indulging in vague fancies when he made use of the expression quoted. The spirit he was referring to may be described as the soul of the soul, and with that, for the moment, we need not be concerned. The important point which occultism brings out is that the soul of man, while something enormously subtler and more ethereal and more lasting than the body, is itself a material reality. Not material as chemistry understands matter, but as physical science en bloc might understand it if the tentaculi of each branch of science were to grow more sensitive and were to work more in harmony. It is no denial of the materiality of any hypothetical substance to say that one cannot determine its atomic weight and its affinities. The ether that transmit light is held to be material by anyone who holds it to exist at all. But there is a gulf of difference between it and the thinnest of the gases. You do not always approach a scientific truth from the same direction. You may perceive some directly. You have to infer others indirectly. But these latter may not, on that account, be the less certain. The materiality of ether is inferable from the behavior of light. The materiality of soul may be inferable from its subjection to forces. A mesmeric influence is a force emanating from certain physical characteristics of the mesmerist. It impinges on the soul of the subject at a distance and produces an effect perceptible to him, demonstrable to others. Of course, this is an illustration and no proof. I must set forth as well as I am able. And that can be but very imperfectly, the discoveries of occultism without at first attempting the establishment by proof of each part of these discoveries. Further on, I shall be able to prove some parts at any rate, and others will then be recognized as indirectly established, too. The soul is material, and inheres in the ordinary, more grossly material body. 
and it is the condition of things which enables the occultist to speak positively on the subject, for he can satisfy himself at one coup that there is such a thing as a soul. And it is this condition of things which enables the occultist to speak positively on the subject, for he can satisfy himself at one coup that there is such a thing as a soul, and that it is material in its nature, by disassociating it from the body under some conditions and restoring it again. The occultist can even do this sometimes with other souls. His primary achievement, however, is to do so with his own. When I say that the occultist knows he has a soul, I refer to this power. He knows it just as another man knows he has a great coat. He can put it from him and render it manifest as something separate from himself. But remember that to him, when the separation is effected, he is the soul and the thing put off is the body. And this is to attain nothing less than absolute certainty about the great problem of survival after death. The adept does not rely on faith or on metaphysical speculation in regard to the possibilities of his existence apart from the body. He experiences such an existence whenever he pleases. And although it may be allowed that the mere art of emancipating himself temporarily from the body would not necessarily inform him concerning his ultimate destinies after that emancipation should be final at death, it gives him, at all events, exact knowledge concerning the conditions under which he will start on his journey in the next world. While his body lives, his soul is, so to speak, a captive balloon, though with a very long, elastic, and imponderable cable. Captive, a sense, will not necessarily tell him whether the balloon will float when at last the machinery below breaks up, and he finds himself altogether adrift. But it is something to be an aeronaut already, before the journey begins, and to know definitely, as I said before, that there are such things as balloons for certain emergencies to sail in. There would be infinite grandeur in the faculty I've described alone, supposing that were the end of a depth ship. But instead of being the end, it is more like the beginning, the seemingly magic feats which the adepts in occultism have the power to perform are accomplished, I am given to understand by means of familiarity with a force in nature which is referred to in Sanskrit writings as akas. Western science has done much in discovering some of the properties and powers of electricity. Occult science, ages before, had done much more in discovering the properties and powers of akas. In the coming race, the late Lord Lytton whose connection with occultism appears to have been closer than the world generally has yet realized, gives a fantastic and imaginative account of the wonders achieved in the world to which his hero penetrates, by means of Vril. In writing of Vril, Lord Lytton has clearly been poeticizing Akaz. The coming race is described as a people entirely unlike adepts in many essential particulars as a complete nation, for one thing, of men and women all equally handling the powers, even from childhood, which, or some of which among others not described, the adepts have conquered. This is a mere fairy tale founded on the achievements of occultism. But no one who has made a study of the latter can fail to see, can fail to recognize with a conviction accounting to certainty, 
that the author of The Coming Race must have been familiar with the leading ideas of occultism, perhaps with a great deal more. The same evidence is afforded by Lord Lytton's other novels of mystery, Zanoni and The Strange Story. In Zanoni, the sublime personage in the background, Mejnur, is intended plainly to be a great adept of Eastern occultism, exactly like those of whom I have to speak. It is difficult to know why in this case, where Lord Lytton has manifestly intended to adhere much more closely to the real facts of occultism than in the coming race, he should have represented Maynour as a solitary survivor of the Rosicrucian fraternity. The guardians of occult science are content to be a small body as compared with the tremendous importance of the knowledge which they save from perishing. But they have never allowed their numbers to diminish to the extent of being in any danger of ceasing to exist as an organized body on earth. It is difficult again to understand why Lord Lytton, having learned so much as he certainly did, should have been content to use up his information merely as an ornament of fiction, instead of giving it to the world in a form which should claim more serious consideration. At all events, prosaic people will argue to that effect but it is not impossible that Lord Lytton himself had become, through long study of the subject, so permeated with the love of mystery, which inheres in the occult mind apparently, that he preferred to throw out his information in a veiled and mystic shape, so that it would be intelligible to readers in sympathy with himself, and would blow unnoticed past the commonplace understanding, without awakening the angry rejection which these pages, for example, if they are destined to attract any notice at all, will assuredly encounter at the hands of bigots in science, religion, and the great philosophy of the commonplace. A cause, be it then understood, is a force for which we have no name, and in reference to which we have no experience to guide us to a conception of its nature. One can only grasp at the idea required by conceiving that it is much more potent, subtle, an extraordinary an agent than electricity, as electricity is superior in subtlety and variegated efficiency to steam, it is through his acquaintance with the properties of this force that the adept can accomplish the physical phenomena, which I shall presently be able to show are within his reach, besides others of far greater magnificence. 2. Who are the adepts who handle the tremendous forces of which I speak? There is reason to believe that such adepts have existed in all historic ages, and there are such adepts in India at this moment, or in adjacent countries. The identity of the knowledge they have inherited, with that of ancient initiates in occultism, follows irresistibly from an examination of the views they hold and the faculties they exercise. The conclusion has to be worked out from a mass of literary evidence, and it will be enough to state it for the moment, pointing out the proper channels of research in the matter afterwards. For the present, let us consider the position of the adepts as they now exist, or, to use the designation more generally employed in India, of the Mahatmas. They constitute a brotherhood, or secret association, which ramifies all over the East, but the principal seat of which for the present I gather to be in Tibet, 
But India has not yet been deserted by the adepts, and from that country they still receive many recruits. For the great fraternity is at once the least and the most exclusive organization in the world, and fresh recruits from any race or country are welcome, provided they possess the needed qualifications. The door, as I have been told by one who is himself an adept, is always open to the right man who knocks. But the road that has to be traveled before the door is reached is one which none but very determined travelers can hope to pass. It is manifestly impossible that I can describe its perils in any but very general terms. But it is not necessary to have learned any secrets of initiation to understand the character of the training through which a neophyte must pass before he attains the dignity of a proficient in cultism. The adept is not made, he becomes, as I have been constantly assured, and the process of becoming is mainly in his own hands. Never, I believe, in less than seven years from the time at which a candidate for initiation is accepted as a probationer, is he ever admitted to the very first of the ordeals, whatever they may be, which bar the way to the earliest decrees of occultism. And there is no security for him that the seven years may not be extended ad libitim. He has no security that he will ever be admitted to any initiation whatever. Nor is this appalling uncertainty, which would alone deter most Europeans, however keen upon the subject intellectually, from attempting to advance themselves into the domain of occultism, maintained from the mere caprice of a despotic society, coquetting, so to speak, with the eagerness of its wooers. The trials through which the neophyte has to pass are no fantastic mockeries or mimicries of awful peril. Nor do I take it are the artificial barriers set up by the masters of occultism to try the nerve of the pupils, as a riding master might put up fences in his school. It is inherent in the nature of the science that has to be explored, that its revelations shall stagger the reason and try the most resolute courage. It is in his own interest that the candidate's character and fixity of purpose, and perhaps his physical and mental attributes, are tested and watched with infinite care and patience in the first instance, before he is allowed to take the final plunge into the sea of strange experiences through which he must swim with the strength of his own right arm or perish. As to what may be the nature of the trials that await him during the period of his development, it will be obvious that I can have no accurate knowledge, and conjectures based on fragmentary revelations picked up here and there are not worth recording. But as for the nature of the life led by the mere candidate for admission as a neophyte, it will be equally plain that no secret is involved. The ultimate development of the adept requires, amongst other things, a life of absolute physical purity, and the candidate must, from the beginning, give practical evidence of his willingness to adopt this. He must, that is to say, for all the years of his probation, be perfectly chaste, perfectly abstemious, and indifferent to physical luxury of every sort. This regimen does not involve any fantastic discipline or obtrusive asceticism, nor withdrawal from the world. There would be nothing to prevent a gentleman in ordinary society from being in some of the preliminary stages of training for occult candidature without anybody about him being the wiser. 
For true occultism, the sublime achievement of the real adept is not attained through the loathsome asceticism of an ordinary Indian fakir. The yogi of the woods and wilds, whose dirt accumulates with his sanctity, of the fanatic who fastens iron hooks into his flesh, or holds up an arm until it is withered. An imperfect knowledge of some of the external facts of Indian occultism will often lead to a misunderstanding on this point. Yogvidya is the Indian name for occult science, and it is easy to learn a good deal more than is worth learning about the practices of some misguided enthusiasts who cultivate some of its inferior branches by means of mere physical exercises. Properly speaking, this physical development is called Hatha Yoga, while the loftier sort, which is approached by the discipline of the mind and which leads to the high altitudes of occultism, is called Raya Yoga. No person whom a real occultist would ever think of as an adept has acquired his powers by means of the laborious and puerile exercises of the Hatha Yoga. I do not mean to say these inferior exercises are altogether futile. They do invest the person who pursues them with some abnormal faculties and powers. Many treatises have been written to describe them, and many people who have lived in India will be able to relate curious experiences they have had with proficients in this extraordinary craft. I do not wish to fill these pages with tales of wonder that I have had no means of sifting, or it would be easy to collect examples. But the point to insist on here is that no story anyone can have heard or read which seems to put an ignoble or petty or low-minded aspect on Indian yogiism can have any application to the ethereal yogiism which is called Raya Yoga, and which leads to the awful heights of true adeptship. The Theosophical Society Secret, as the occult organization has always remained, there's a good deal more to be learned concerning the philosophical views which it has preserved or acquired than might be supposed at the first glance. As my own experience when fully described will show, the great adepts of occultism themselves have no repugnance to the dissemination of their religious philosophy, so far as a world untrained as ours is in pure psychological investigation can profit by such teaching nor even are they unconquerably averse to the occasional manifestation of those superior power over the forces of nature, to which their extraordinary researchers have led them. The many apparently miraculous phenomena which I have witnessed through occult agency can never have been exhibited if the general rule which precludes the brothers from the exhibition of their powers to uninitiated persons were absolute. As a general rule, indeed, the display of any occult phenomena for the purposes of exciting the wonder and admiration of beholders is strictly forbidden. And indeed, I should imagine that such prohibition is absolute if there is no higher purpose involved. But it is plain that with a purely philanthropic desire to spread the credit of a philosophical system which is ennobling in its character, the brothers may sometimes wisely permit the display of abnormal phenomena when the minds to which such an appeal is made may be likely to rise from the appreciation of the wonder to a befitting respect for the philosophy which it accredits. And the history of the Theosophical Society has been an expansion of this idea. That history has been a checkered one, 
Because the phenomena that have been displayed have often failed of their effect, sometimes become the subject of a premature publicity, and have brought down on the study of occult philosophy as regarded from the point of view of the outer world, and on the devoted persons who have been chiefly identified with its encouragement by means of the Theosophical Society, a great deal of stupid ridicule and some malevolent persecution. It may be asked, why the brothers? If they are really the great and all-powerful persons I represent them, have permitted indiscretions of the kind referred to. But the inquiry is not so embarrassing as it may seem at the first glance. If the picture of the brothers that I have endeavored to present to the reader has been appreciated rightly, it will show them less accurately qualified, in spite of their powers, than persons of lesser occult development to carry on any undertaking which involves direct relations with a multiplicity of ordinary people in the commonplace world. I gather the primary purpose of the Brotherhood to be something very unlike the task I am engaged in. For example, at this moment, the endeavor to convince the public generally that there really are faculties latent in humanity, capable of such extraordinary development, that they carry us at a bound to an immense distance beyond the dreams of physical science in reference to the comprehension of nature, and at the same time afford us positive testimony concerning the constitution and destinies of the human soul. And is a task on which it is reasonable to suppose the brothers would cast a sympathetic glance, but it will be obvious on a moment's reflection that their primary duty must be to keep alive the actuality of that knowledge. And of those powers concerning which I am merely giving some shadowy account, if the brothers were to employ themselves on the large, rough business of hacking away at the incredulity of a stolid multitude, at the acrimonious incredulity of the materialistic phalanx, at the terrified and indignant incredulity of the orthodox religious world, it is conceivable that they might propter vitam vivendi perdir causas suffer the occult science itself to decay for the sake of persuading mankind that it did really exist. Of course, it might be suggested that Division of labor might be possible in occultism, as in everything else, and that some adepts qualified for the work might be told off for the purpose of breaking down the incredulity of modern science, while the others would carry the primary duties of their career in their own beloved seclusion. But a suggestion of this kind, however practical it may sound to a practical world, would probably present itself as eminently unpractical to the true mystic. To begin with, an aspirant for occult honors does not go through the tremendous and prolonged effort required to win him success. In order, at the end of all things, to embrace a life in the midst of the ordinary world, which on the hypothesis of his success in occultism must necessarily be repugnant to him in the extreme. Probably there is not one real adept who does not look with greater aversion and repugnance on any life except a life of seclusion than we of the outer world would look on the notion of being buried alive in a remote mountain fastness where no foot or voice from the outer world could penetrate. I shall very soon be able to show that the love of seclusion, inherent in adeptship, does not imply a mind vacant of the knowledge of European culture and manners. It is 
On the contrary, compatible with an amount of European culture and experience that people acquainted merely with the commonplace aspects of Eastern life will be surprised to find possible in the case of a man of Oriental birth. Now, the imaginary adept told off on the suggestion I am examining to show the scientific world that there are realms of knowledge it has not yet explored and faculties attainable to man that it has not yet dreamed of possessing would have to be either appointed to discharge that duty or to volunteer for it. In the one case, we have to assume that the occult fraternity is despotic in its treatment of its members in a manner which all my observation leads me to believe it certainly is not. In the other, we have to suppose some adept making a voluntary sacrifice of what he regards as not only the most agreeable, but also the higher life. For what? For the sake of accomplishing a task which he does not regard as of very great importance? relatively, at any rate, to that other task in which he may take a part, the perpetuation and perhaps the development of the great science itself. But I do not care to follow the argument any further, because it will come on for special treatment in a different way presently, enough for the moment to indicate that there are considerations against the adoption of that method of persuasion, which, as far as the judgment of ordinary people would go, would seem the best suited to the introduction of occult truths to modern intelligence. And these considerations appear to have prompted the acceptance by the brothers of the Theosophical Society as a more or less imperfect, but still the best available agency for the performance of a piece of work, in which, without being actually prepared to enter on it themselves, they nevertheless take a cordial interest. And what are the peculiar conditions which render the Theosophical Society, the organization and management of which have been faulty in many ways, the best agency hitherto available for the propagation of occult truths? The zeal and qualifications of its founder, Madame Blavatsky, give the explanation required. It is obvious that to give any countenance or support at all to a society concerned with the promulgation of occult philosophy, it was necessary for the brothers to be in occult communication with it in some way or another. For it must be remembered that, though it may seem to us a very amazing and impossible thing to sit still at home and impress our thoughts upon the mind of a distant friend by an effort of will, a brother living in an unknown Himalayan retreat would not only be able to converse as freely as he likes with any of his friends, who are initiates like himself, in whatever part of the world they may happen to be, but would find any other modes of communication, such as those with which the crawling faculties of the outer world have to be content, simply intolerable in their tedium and inefficacy. Besides, he must, to be able to afford assistance to any society having its sphere of operations among people in the world, be able to hear from it with the same facility that he can send communications to it. So there must be an initiate at the other end of the line. Finally, the occult rules evidently require this last-named condition. Or what amounts to the same thing? Forbid arrangements which can only be avoided on this condition. Now, Madame Blavatsky is an initiate, is an adept to the extent of possessing this magnificent power over psychological telegraphy with her occult friends, that she has stopped short of that further development in adeptship, 
that would have her tided to right over the boundary between this and the occult world altogether. It is the circumstance which has rendered her assumption of the task with which the Theosophical Society is concerned compatible with the considerations pointed out above as operating to prevent the assumption of such a duty by a full adept. As regards the supremely essential characteristic, she has, in fact, been exactly suited to the emergency. How it came to pass that her occult training carried her as far as it did and no further is a question into which it is fruitless to inquire, because the answer would manifestly entail explanations which would impinge too closely on the secrets of initiation which are never disclosed under any circumstances whatever. After all, she is a woman. Though her powerful mind, widely if erratically cultivated, and perfectly dauntless courage proved among other ways on the battlefield. But more than by any bravery with bullets, by her occult initiation, renders the name, connoting what it ordinarily does, rather absurd in application to her, and this has, perhaps, barred her from the highest degree in occultism that she might otherwise have attained. At all events, after a course of occult study carried on for seven years in a Himalayan retreat, and crowning a devotion to occult pursuits extending over five and thirty or forty years, Madame Blavatsky reappeared in the world, dazed as she met ordinary people going about in commonplace, benighted ignorance concerning the wonders of occult science, at the mere thought of the stupendous gulf of experience that separated her from them. She could hardly at first bear to associate with them, for thinking of all she knew that they did not know and that she was bound not to reveal. Anyone can understand the burden of a great secret, but the burden of such a secret as occultism, and the burden of great powers only conferred on condition that their exercise should be very strictly circumscribed by rule, must have been trying indeed. Circumstances, or to put the matter more plainly, the guidance of friends from whom, though she had left them behind in the Himalayas on her return to Europe, she was no longer in danger of separation, as we understand the term, induced her to visit America, and there, assisted by some other persons whose interest in the subject was kindled by occasional manifestations of her extraordinary powers, and notably by Colonel Alcott, its life devoted president, she founded the Theosophical Society, the objects of which, as originally defined, were to explore the latent psychological powers of man and the ancient Oriental literature in which the clue to these may be hidden, and in which the philosophy of occult science may be partly discovered. The society took root readily in America, while branches were also formed in England and elsewhere. But, leaving these to take care of themselves, Madame Blavatsky ultimately returned to India to establish the society there among the natives, from whose natural hereditary sympathies with mysticism it was reasonable to expect an ardent sympathy with a psychological enterprise which not only appealed to their intuitive belief in the reality of Yogvidya, but also to their best patriotism by exhibiting India as the fountainhead of the highest, if the least known, and the most secluded culture in the world. Here, however, began the practical blunders in the management of the Theosophical Society, which led to the incidents referred to above, as having given it, 
So far a checkered career. Madame Blavatsky, to begin with, was wholly unfamiliar with the everyday side of Indian life, her previous visits having brought her only into contact with groups of people utterly unconnected with the current social system and characteristics of the country. Nor could she have undertaken a worse preparation for Indian life than that supplied by a resident of some years in the United States. This sent her out to India unfurnished with the recommendations which she could readily have obtained. If she had spent the time just referred to in England, and left her unprovided with information it was highly important for her to possess concerning the true character of the British ruling class of India and their relations with the people. The consequence was that Madame Blavatsky, on her first arrival in India, adopted an attitude of obtrusive sympathy with the natives of the soil, as compared with the Europeans, seeking their society in a manner which, coupled with the fact that she made none of the usual advances to European society, and with her manifestly Russian name, had the effect not unnaturally of rendering her suspect to the rather clumsy organization which in India attempts to combine with sundry others the functions of a political police. These suspicions, it is true, were allayed almost as soon as they were conceived, but not before Madame Blavatsky had been made for a short time the object of an espionage so awkward that it became grossly obvious to herself and roused her indignation to fever heat. To a more phlegmatic nature, the incident would have been little more than amusing, but all accidents combined to develop trouble. A Russian by birth, though naturalized in the United States, Madame Blavatsky is probably more sensitive than an Englishwoman less experienced in political espionage would be to the insult involved in being taken for a spy. Then the inner consciousness of having for enthusiasm the purely intellectual or spiritual enterprise to which she had devoted her life, renounced the place in society to which her distinguished birth and family naturally entitled her, probably intensified the bitterness of her indignation, finding the sacrifice not only unappreciated but turned against her and regarded as justifying a foul suspicion. At all events, the circumstances acting on an excitable temperament led her to make public protests which caused it to be widely known by natives as well as Europeans, that she had been looked at askance by government authorities. And this idea for a time impeded the success of her work. Nothing can be done in India without a European impulse in the beginning. At all events, it handicaps any enterprise frightfully to be without such an impulse if native cooperation is required. Not that the Theosophical Society failed to get members. The natives were flattered at the attitude towards them taken up by their new European friends, as Madame Blavatsky and Colonel Alcott were no doubt generally regarded in spite of their American nationality, and showed a shallow eagerness to become Theosophists. But their ardor did not always prove durable, and in some few cases they showed a lamentable want of earnestness by breaking away from the society altogether. Meanwhile, Madame Blavatsky began to make friends amongst the Europeans, and in 1880 visited Simla, where she began late in the day to approach her work from the right direction. Again, however, some mistakes were made which have retarded the establishment of the Theosophical Society. 
as far as India is concerned, on the dignified footing that it ought to occupy. A great many wonderful phenomena were manifested in the presence at various times of a great many people. But proper safeguards were not taken to avert the great danger that must always attend such a method of recommending occult science to public notice. It is beyond dispute that phenomena exhibited under thoroughly satisfactory conditions to persons intelligent enough to comprehend their significance create an effect in awakening a thirst for the study of occult philosophy that no other appeal can produce. But it is equally true that at the first glance this may not be so apparent, that to minds quite unprepared by previous training to grasp the operation of occult forces, the most perfectly unimpeachable phenomena will be received rather as an insult to the understanding than as a proof of the operation of occult power. This is especially the case with persons of merely average intelligence, whose faculties cannot stand the shock of a sudden appeal to an entirely new set of ideas. The strain is too great, the new chain of reasoning breaks, and the commonplace observer of abnormal occurrences reverts to his original frame of stolid incredulity, perfectly unaware of the fact that a revelation of priceless intellectual importance has been offered to him and has been misunderstood. Nothing is commoner than to hear people say, I can't believe in the reality of a phenomena occurrence unless I see it for myself. Show it me, and I shall believe in it, but not till then. Many people who say this are quite mistaken as to what they would believe if the occurrence were shown to them. I have, over and over again, seen phenomena of an absolutely genuine nature pass before the eyes of people unused to investigating occurrences of the kind and leave no impression behind beyond an irritated conviction that they were somehow being taken in. Just this happened in some conspicuous instances at Simla. And it is needless to say that, many as were the phenomena that Madame Blavatsky produced, or was instrumental in producing, during the visit to which I am referring, the number of people in the place who had no opportunity of seeing them was considerably greater than that of the witnesses. And for these, as a rule, the whole series of incidents presented itself simply as an imposition. It was nothing to the purpose for the holders of this theory that there was a glaring absence from the whole business of any motive for imposture, that a considerable group of persons whose testimony and capacity would never have been impunged, had any other matter been under discussion, were emphatic in their declarations as to the complete reality of the phenomena that had been displayed. The commonplace mind could not assimilate the idea that it was face to face with a new revelation in nature, and any hypothesis, no matter how absurd and illogical in its details, was preferable for the majority to the simple grandeur of the truth. On the whole, therefore, as Madame Blavatsky became a celebrity in India, her relations with European society were intensified. She made many friends and secured some ardent converts to a belief in the reality of occult powers. But she became the innocent object of bitter animosity on the part of some other acquaintances, who, unable to assimilate what they saw in her presence, took up an attitude of disbelief which deepened into positive enmity as the whole subject became enveloped in a cloud of more or less excited controversy. 
And it is needless to say that many of the newspapers made great capital out of the whole situation, ridiculing Madame Blavatsky's dupes, twisting every bit of information that came out about her phenomena into the most ludicrous shape it could be made to assume. Mockery of that sort was naturally expected by English friends who avowed their belief in the reality of Madame Blavatsky's powers, and probably never gave one of them a moment's serious annoyance. But for the oversensitive and excitable person chiefly concerned, they were indescribably tormenting, and eventually it grew doubtful whether her patience would stand the strain put upon it. Whether she would not relinquish altogether the ungrateful task of inducing the world at large to accept the good gifts which she had devoted her life to offering them. Happily, so far, no catastrophe has ensued, but no history of Columbus in chains for discovering a new world, or Galileo in prison for announcing the true principles of astronomy, is more remarkable for those who know all the bearings of the situation in India as regards the Theosophical Society, than the sight of Madame Blavatsky slandered and ridiculed by most of the Anglo-Indian papers, and spoken of as a charlatan by the commonplace crowd, in return for having freely offered them some of the wonderful fruits, as much as the rules of the Great Occult Association permit her to offer, of the lifelong struggle in which she has conquered her extraordinary knowledge. In spite of all this, meanwhile, the Theosophical Society remains the one organization which supplies to inquirers who thirst for occult knowledge a link of communication, however slight, with the great fraternity in the background which takes an interest in its progress and is accessible to its founder. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, Please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.